Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you under the seat. If you have a pew Bible, the page will be 934. First Timothy, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. This is the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Very good. Let's begin with the word of prayer, church. Father in heaven, what a privilege, God, it is to sing the beautiful name of Jesus and to know that that name has no equal in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is no name, O God, given amongst men by which we might be saved apart from the name of Jesus. No other name in which the demons will flee from except the name of Jesus Christ. All authority and majesty and dominion, authority and power has been given to Jesus Christ, O God. And we look forward to the day when our Lord returns in glory, O God, to set up His kingdom that will rule from sea to shining sea. Father, I pray, God, that You would strengthen us, God, in this time to hear from Your Word and to learn from You. And to be a people, O God, who long for Christ's return. God, we are so inadequate, God, yet you have chosen us to do your will here on this earth and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who do not know you, that they might see real life. Father, as we talk about leadership today, from this text, O God, of your inspired scripture, I pray, Father, that we as your people will be moved by it, moved to obey you and to love you and to treasure you more for what you say to us through your word. Help us to do what is right in your eyes, to seek your face and to be gospel lights in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, in the last few weeks, we have been going through this series on 1 Timothy, specifically talking about how people in the church are to treat each other 
And why this is so important is because how Christians behave directly affects and reflects on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, either driving people away from Him or to Him, to the beauty and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle moves on and continues in this topic, not just about widows and how we treat each other generally in the church, but speaks specifically about how we are to treat leaders in the church. Now, no organization, as you know, rises higher than its leadership, and also in the church, that holds true as well. You know, all throughout this letter, we have seen that a lot of the problems that have plagued the church there at Ephesus are the direct result of poor, unbiblical, unqualified leadership. And you see the devastation that they bring. You know, Paul's opening words to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 3, show us just how much of a problem these leaders are. He tells Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Like that's how he starts his letter. And later on, we find out just what kind of a problem these false teachers actually are. As Paul begins identifying some, like Hymenaeus, Alexander, and then later in 2 Timothy, he names Philetus as well, saying that these individuals have not only shipwrecked their faith, but are devastating the Christian faith of other people as well because of what they are saying and what they are doing in the church. You know, the question for us is, how bad is false teaching? And the answer for us in the scriptures is that it's bad. In fact, it is really bad. So bad, actually, that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses an an illness to describe the effects of false teaching in a church. Gangrene, he said. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what gangrene is, it's a condition in which basically the tissue of the body dies. It doesn't get enough blood due to like an injury or frostbite that you see on mountain climbers who get stranded. And though the limbs stay attached, they blacken as the tissue necrotizes and becomes dead, just hanging off of these living appendages. It's black. This is exactly, I think, what happens to a church body when unqualified church leaders are there in the congregation, exposing the congregants to their toxic teaching and also to their spiritually diseased lives. And if left untreated long enough, a church that has these gangrenous individuals, the church itself actually, which is a living body made out of living stones, the body of Christ, it will actually begin to die. And the people, though they are breathing and walking around, themselves will become like that necrotized tissue that is dead. And instead of being a sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ to the watching world, the church instead begins to smell musty and decaying like death. Now, the difficulty of being in a dying church is that it's sometimes difficult to notice the odor, especially when you get used to it. But you can observe the effects on new people when they walk through the doors of a dying church. They take one whiff of the toxic uh, teaching, the scent of unqualified leaders. They smell it, and then they leave rather quickly, and they never come back. You know, a church might have a great building, but if the body parts are dying, 
All that will be left at the end of the day is a skeleton once the tissue is completely decayed. And sadly, many churches have become this way. They have lost the gospel and the people have died in the church and all that is left is a building that is sold off to developers. When people abandon Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ abandons that pseudo-church. You know, as we've seen repeatedly over and over again this text, and we all know this intuitively, good leadership absolutely matters. And in God's church, God's qualifications for leadership count the most. Now, as we look at our text today, I'd like us to focus on three things. Three categories of leaders that Paul is going to deal with. What to do with the good, what to do with the bad, and what to do with the new. Let's begin by looking at the first category here by rereading verses 17 to 18 together. 17 to 18 in your Bible, so you can follow along as I read. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. You know, in these two verses here, we learn how God's people are to treat good elders or good pastors or good leaders who are over them or who rule well over them, which is leading the church. So just to be clear, Paul isn't saying here that a church elder team is composed of two kinds of leaders. That is, there are those category one who lead the church well and are worthy of double honor and a category two type of leaders who don't lead the church well and therefore only get single honor, like a 60-40% kind of split. That's not what he's saying here, that there's two types of leaders, good ones and bad ones that make up an elder team in a church. See, given how opposed Paul is to bad leaders, this would make absolutely no sense. There's no way that Paul is saying, give double honor to good leaders, but for those who are bad leaders, give them only single honor. No, I think what he's saying here, when he's talking about an elder who rules well, what he's simply saying is, these are the kinds of elders who are biblically qualified, doing their job, carrying out the biblical mandates, and are faithful in their shepherding duties. So for good elders, the only kind that should be in the church, he says, give them double honor. Now the question for us is, what does the word honor mean? Now in Canadian culture, we don't talk about honor much, but if you come from an Asian culture or other societies where honor is a big thing, you'll you'll have a sense, you know, that honor carries, you know, respect, and also the idea of giving things to people who are worthy of that respect. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Paul uses that same word honor in its verbal form in his address to what to do with widows. He says to them, honor widows who are truly widows. And by that he means, give them the respect that is due their station, but at the same time, ensure that they are financially and materially taken care of. That's what it means to honor. Now, if that's true, for a dependent widow, how much more true is it that we should honor or give double honor to those who faithfully shepherd and take care of the flock of God that has been entrusted to them, namely the elders or pastor leaders of the church? You know, by double honor, I don't think what Paul means here is that if you give a widow $10.50, you better give the church leaders, $21 plus taxes on top. That's not what he means by that. I think it's an expression. The same way that when we talk in our world and we say, 
Deadline is coming up. I need you to double your efforts. It does not mean that you exactly clock in at 9 o'clock and leave 16 hours later. What it means is that your boss is saying to you, make sure that you really produce because we need to get this done. So I think it's just a way of saying, not just honor, but I want you to greatly honor these individuals who are over you and leading the church. If there's any distinction to be made in this passage, it's not between good and bad leaders, actually. But really, it's between, I think, those who lead God's people and are worthy of double honor, but those who lead and have a specific emphasis on what Paul says is preaching and teaching. Especially those, he says, give a double honor to. Now, all elders in a church must be capable of teaching and preaching. But not all will specialize in it or devote the significant amount of time to it. There is a multiplicity in the type of gifts that are given to all people. Just in the same way a family or workplace would not work very well if everyone was exactly the same. You know, if you were working in Disney Studios and everyone was an animator, you know, you wouldn't have anybody to clean the floors. You wouldn't have anyone else to do the other things like advertising you need to do. Everyone understands that a body or a company works well when people do what they are best at. And the same thing is true in the church of Jesus Christ. All elders should be capable of stepping in and teaching, yet at the same time, not all will devote themselves to this work. Some might do pastoral care, others administration, some personal evangelism, but the point is they work together. But there is a special honor that Paul wishes to give to those who devote themselves to preaching and teaching. And when you think about what preaching and teaching actually is, you can understand why that is so. You know, the preaching and teaching of God's word is not just a guy getting up in front of people, giving them his own opinion. It is the opening of the very word of God and declaring to people in no uncertain terms, this, what I am saying to you right now, is the word of God. It is not simply my opinion. I am teaching you timeless truths which are for all people, for all time, and which are God's very revelation to you. He speaks to you right now, and I speak not on my own authority. To preach the word of God is to give people from the text, a sense of the greatness, the grandeur of the Lord, the heinousness of sin, and the necessity of salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. So it's understandable why I think Paul says to give double honor to such individuals who devote themselves to that work, exhausting themselves, laboring to have people hear the word of God. And believe me, if you ask me and those of you who have served as Bible study leaders or have been preachers yourself, you will understand how exhausting it is to prepare week in and week out, day after day, to preach to God's people. You know, sometimes people come to me with all sorts of comments about or questions about pastoral ministry. And one of the things they ask is, hey, how long does it take you usually to prepare your sermons to get up and speak? And my answer to them is usually two, twofold. I tell them, one, my whole life, and the second is about a day and a half, at least for me. And I say the first part my whole life because in one sense, a sermon is the cumulative product of a heart and a mind that has been molded day after day, week after week, and year after year by the things of God. You know, God takes great delight in hammering his preachers and those who declare his words to mold them to look more like himself through intense study and trials. 
So it takes years in one sense to make a sermon. Why? Because it takes years to make a man. But in the other part, I say a day and a half because that's what it takes for me at least to study a new text and to synthesize of it, synthesize it, pray through the needs of God's people, think about people who are going to be sitting there and saying, how do I speak this in such a way that God talks to them, meets them in their lives, and communicates in a way they understand? You know, others can be slower or faster at this, but all the great preachers of the past, not a single one of them have ever said that preaching is an easy job. You know, for those of you who are aspiring Bible study leaders or teachers, I would really encourage you guys to forego most of the junk food that passes for food on, that comes out of Hollywood or your social media snacks. Learn to eat a steady diet of Scripture. Learn instead to eat carbohydrates that are made by just chewing on the cultural trends and digesting them in the biblical stomach acid that is produced by reading the Bible into your soul. And when you see what's actually going on in your culture, take the Bible and then apply it to the truths that you have distilled through your stomach so you can help people believe God and trust Him more. You need to eat protein as well. Prayer protein, I would say, which gives you the spiritual muscles that you need to be able to lift when the weight of ministry is extremely heavy on you. So you trust God for that. You know, a diet of these things, eating healthily, spiritually healthy, is important to doing a ministry of the Word. The ministry of God's Word is a tough ministry that requires you to not only throw your whole body and heart into it, but your very soul as well. Writing, rewriting, and begging on your knees before God to give you something to say to His peoples and to transform their lives so that unbelievers see the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, their need for Him, and for believers to love and to trust Him more. It takes the greatest amount of our concentration, our highest efforts, and our absolute allegiance. It's no wonder that God then commands that for those in His church who devote themselves to do this well, that they receive a double honor. And to support this command, to show that it's not just Paul's opinion, he cites two scriptures to support him. Look at the first one. It says, Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. And what this is, it's actually a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, straight from the law of Moses. And Paul actually quotes this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, arguing that just as soldiers don't pay their own salary, so also farmers eat of what they plant. Pastors or elder shepherds over their flocks should also gain some benefit materially, even as they sow spiritually amongst the people. So that's point one, he says, from the law. The second reason, he says, is a quotation from Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when Jesus actually sends his disciples out to preach and tells them, don't worry about where you're going to stay or what you eat. For all the people who receive your message, you stay with them and let them provide for you. Now, I think this is really fascinating here that Paul calls Jesus' words here, Scripture alongside Deuteronomy. You know, this gives us actually a hint that at this time, as the New Testament was being written, people were recognizing that the words written in the New Testament were of the same equal authority as the Old Testament. And at this time, the writings of Luke and others were being elevated to the level of Scripture. And so you quickly see that Jesus here, in the minds of Christians and people, his words carried the same authoritative weight as the God of the Old Testament because he is the one and the same. So Jesus said it, and the law said it. 
That's why we should support them. Now, I know that there are some denominations, like the Brethren, for example, who don't believe, for example, in paying pastors or elders. But the truth of the matter is this, the idea of supporting those who labor, especially in preaching and teaching, honoring and respecting them, is grounded completely in the scriptures. Now, this doesn't mean, I think, that every single elder of a church absolutely needs to be paid or become a church staff. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you see Paul working with the Corinthian church, arguing and explaining from scriptures that he absolutely has the right to be paid as a faithful minister of the word of God, yet at the same time he says, because of the Corinthians, knowing that they have been fleeced of their money by super apostles and not wanting to be associated with them, Paul says, I'm not working on the same terms as them. He worked a job with his hands, being a tent maker, supported himself because he knew it would be a better thing for his testimony and ministry to that troubled Corinthian church. So, our, so you can clearly see from this that we are not always obligated to take a salary, even if it's a right, and that right should be surrendered when it is better for the people of God. Some elders in the church are blessed to have excellent jobs given to them by God in which they have a very fruitful ministry, and they can support the church also by being out there in the world. But the point is this. Under ordinary, normal circumstances, churches should support good elders, especially those who labor in the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. Now, as I was writing this, I, I just thought, it, this is very awkward, you know, in one sense for me to talk about, because it seems like a conflict of interest in that I am the church employee that is paid here by the church. But I want you to hear me as well, that I'm not preaching this to get a raise, but because this is where we are in the text, and we do not skip things as we work through the Bible, okay? This is what the text says, and we will always preach it faithfully. Sometimes people tell me, you know, they say, boy, it must be hard to get by on a pastor's salary, to which I usually tell them, you know, for, for some pastors, yes, I understand that's the case, but honestly, for our family, we're quite okay in fact, my church has often offered to pay me more several times, but we have also refused that. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that I refuse because we are somehow rolling in the money here. I would have made way more money if I had stayed in engineering. I, nobody goes into the ministry for the money except those in the prosperity camp. But I'm here because God has called me to preach. And there's no, nothing more valuable in the world than priceless souls that are won for our master, jewels in the crown of those who are God's beloved. You know, those are the only things we will be able to take into eternity with us. You might have a bank account with nine zeros in it, but you will never take that into heaven. Souls will go with you. And that is the most important work in this world that we could ever be doing. And every Christian who is ambassador of Jesus has the privilege of leading others to Christ. My point is this, guys. Our church has been very good to us as a family. So I'm not here asking for a raise. But I say this knowing very well that outside the walls of this church, unfortunately, there are many other churches that have very unhealthy views of money and also the way that they treat their pastors. In fact, some churches force their pastors to live on a minimal salary so that he can be an example of what it means to live by faith, while their congregants actually live very, very well. And this honestly is terrible, and I've seen this a number of times. And obviously, I think for many of these churches, it reflects actually a very low valuation or appreciation of spiritual things. The command to the church actually is very clear. 
Can I put it in your outline? Number one, pay good pastors, verses 17 to 18. And that is what the scripture says of us. Honor them, respect them in the Lord, and offer them financial remuneration that is in fairness to the work that they do, the precious work that they do for the Lord Jesus Christ and in care for the souls of men and women. Now, that's what you do for good pastors. The question is, what do you do about bad pastors, category two? Look with me at verses 19 to 20. Paul leaves nothing out here. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. You know, here we, we learn what to do when elders go bad and how do you deal with elders when sin is involved. You know, sometimes I hear people tell me, man, I wish I could get paid too to read the Bible. Now, I look at that and I say, Yes, it is really good to have extended time to read the Bible and to glory in God and the things that you get out there and absolute joy to the heart and the soul. That's a real privilege to be able to have as a pastor. But at the same time, you have to realize it is also one of the most terrifying things to do. Because the more you realize you know from the Bible, the more you realize what's wrong with your own soul. And then you look at your church and you look at the people around you, and then you look at your city, and you say, oh my goodness, we fall so short of the glory of God. And then you look around and say, am I supposed to do something about it now? Oh, why did I even read that? It is a double-edged sword in one sense, because to know more, more will be demanded of you by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, confronting people, especially in their sin, is extremely tough work, if you've ever done it before. Pastors don't study the Bible to win Bible trivia games at parties. You spend hours studying the Word of God because you're there to sharpen your sword so that you won't die in the heat of battle. And when you fight to free people from their sins, and you're trying to use your sword to cut their idols away from them that are killing them, but they're clinging on to them because they love their idols, they can slander you and paint you in the worst knife possible. It's the same way when you try to give a two-year-old their shot. You will chase them around with a needle. And the only good thing is you're stronger than them. You can hold them. You say, you need this because you're going to die otherwise. But a two-year-old does not understand this. Same thing with us. You know, this is why accusations against a pastor or an elder need to be corroborated by more than one witness because of the nature of their work leads people who love their sin and their idolatry to say all kinds of false things about them, even when they're trying to help them. And I know a pastor who was blessed with a vacation for him and his family by a wealthy donor who later actually became un unhappy with him and later accused him of fraud to the board of elders. Amazingly, actually, when the woman met with the church elders and made her case, she, after it was examined, she admitted that she had lied and made the whole thing up. Absolutely crazy. You wouldn't believe what people are capable of. I myself, in the ministry, have been accused of all sorts of things. I've read unfair criticism of myself on church people's blogs that's filled with swearing about me. I've read, I've, I've been accused of being a cold and unloving pastor by an individual who thought that I saw them and specifically ignored them when I actually never even saw them. Uh, I've been yelled at by angry parents and angry parishioners over 
things that I have done or those who have blamed me for their kids' depression while refusing to acknowledge their own ungodly behavior. I, my preaching receives comments all the time. Everything from the good ones like, oh, that was great. God really spoke to me to you don't preach the gospel, but you preach works or your preaching isn't very biblical. Your preaching is really terrible. Have you thought about listening to so-and-so or your preaching is okay, but the way you talk is really irritating. You know, I have received all kinds of things from people. You know, in moments like these, you know, I'm reminded of Proverbs 19.11 that says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you know, did not say anything, even as they vilely accused him there on the cross. And I'm so glad that he didn't. But because by his silence and his willingness to die, he saved all of us. How much more so we can we not endure criticism, unfair accusations and slander for the sake of people who need him? You know, the point of this is not to say that elders are worthy of a special protection. The point, you know, in Deuteronomy 19.15, in which this law comes up about needing two witnesses, really is what all Jewish people, anyone who lived under the law was afforded. The point was that nobody could be convicted based on the testimony of a single witness without corroborating evidence. Now, this doesn't mean that a pastor who commits, let's say, sexual abuse, you know, against one person should be exonerated just because there is no second witness. In fact, with advancements today in technology and DNA evidence, many of these things can act as second witnesses that are foolproof. But the point is, charges against an elder are serious, and they really need to be substantiated. So don't believe everything you hear about a pastor or an elder right away. But let's say it's not a rumor and it turns out to be true. What do you do if a pastor or an elder persists in their sin? And the answer in verse 20 is to deal with it publicly. Rebuke them before the whole church. Don't cover it up or say that it's acceptable. There are numerous churches, for example, when they have problems with moral failures, adultery, they will say nothing to their congregations whatsoever, but simply say the individual left for personal reasons, which I think is quite dishonest, actually. Now, Philip Keller, you know, in his books, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, talks about how important it is to deal with problems, especially when it's bad sheep. You know, here Paul says, deal with it so that the rest will stand in fear and they won't have an unhealthy view that sin is permitted. Philip Keller in his book says, if you don't deal with bad sheep, this is what happens. He tells the story about how he has one female sheep that was notorious at digging out under the fences and escaping. He left it for a while, hoping the problem would go away. But soon that sheep taught all the other sheep how to do that. And soon he had multiple sheep escaping from the pen. So he did the only thing that he had to do was he had to get rid of that sheep to stop the other sheep from sinning against him. The same goes for bad leaders in the church. They cannot be allowed to continue in their sin lest the sheep begin to believe that such sinful behavior is permissible. Elders whose sin cannot be protected simply because they're your friend, because they're wealthy and contribute a lot of money to the church, or have a long track record of service, or they're even great preachers or administrators. It doesn't mean you need to drag them through the vod and milify, vilify them, but it means the sins can't be just swept under the rug. The church needs to know and hear that the other leaders disapprove of what they have done and will not allow them to continue serving as leaders unless there is repentance in their lives. 
You know, recently the news has been full of stories of megachurch pastors who have been ousted because of scandals or because of sinful conduct that they've just been hiding. Some of the cases are really bad, and you realize that people knew in the church, but they were simply too afraid because these individuals were very charismatic or powerful. Fear. I understand that. You know, confronting a powerful leader in the church is not an easy thing to do. It's actually quite terrifying, distressing. In fact, your flesh wants nothing at all to do with that. You know, I myself have never enjoyed confronting church leaders. It made me sick to my stomach, but I only ever did so because I feared God's displeasure with me more than I did man's. Not courageous, just fear God more than I fear people. You know, Paul understood just how strong the fear of man is, which is why I think he pointed Timothy to God. Look at verse 21, what he says to him. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now that's very serious. And what's Paul saying? He's saying, do the hard thing, Timothy. Confront these leaders. Why? Because God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and all of his elect angels, angelic light warriors, stand and they watch you. Don't show partiality or favoritism to elders in sin, but you do the right thing and deal with it publicly. You know, this is very different from corporate America or Canada that tolerates sinful or unacceptable behavior when it's pragmatic to do so. For example, Steve Jobs, right, who was the founder of Apple, was known for having a terrible temper, yelling and swearing at his employees, belittling them, and being highly authoritarian. And people ask the question, why was this even allowed? The guy was a jerk. As one writer put it this way, this is why people let it happen. People rallied around his genius and accepted his demands and abuse because Jobs really was smarter than everyone else in this room and 99.98% of the people on the planet. Steve delivered on his vision, and if basking in his reflected glow required joining a company with a bizarre culture that reflected Steve's personality, people still flocked to him. In other words, why in the world do you tolerate jerks as leaders? You tolerate them if it's good for you and they make you money. But the true thing, that is not true for the church of Jesus Christ. A gifted church leader who brings in people, fills seats, brings in money, cannot be excused from sinning. Whether this is adultery, verbal abuse, authoritarian behavior, and so on. Ultimately, why? Because we are accountable to God. The bottom line of what makes a church faithful is not whether there are bums in the seat. What makes a church faithful is whether they adhere to the commands of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I put this number two in your outline. Number two, discipline bad pastors. No partiality. And this brings us to our final point, verses 22 to 25. The text says this. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, 
The laying on of hands here that Paul opens up with most likely refers to Timothy's ordination when the council of elders lay hands on him and ordain him for pastoral ministry. Paul's saying here, look guys, don't appoint new leaders, new pastors, new elders too quickly. And if you do that and things go south, you will take part in the sins of others by being responsible for their sinful behavior and the damage that they wreak. So you appoint somebody there, you also share in the responsibility of what happens. I think this is a great lesson for us, especially as we think about where we are in the life of our church now. The key word when it comes to appointing leaders is slow. S-L-O-W. Now, new churches often face this problem, especially new plants. Everyone's excited at the beginning. They appoint without testing. And nobody, when you're starting something new, ever imagines how bad something can go. We're so limited in our wisdom. You know, one of the worst things I have to listen to as a pastor is stories of Christians who were warned or knew in their own hearts they were not supposed to marry certain people, but they went up doing it anyways. And now they are in divorced or in a custody battle over their children, some of them wishing they were never married in the first place. The same is true for churches that rush to appoint a pastor or an elder without testing them. In the end, more damage is done than good. It's only by God's grace that things turn out well. And I've listened to stories, especially from those who have planted churches in Asia, where because of the spread of the gospel, New believers who come to know Jesus within a few weeks are now becoming disciplers of people who are one-day-old Christians. Five-week-old Christians leading baby Christians who are a week or a day or two old. Now, in some cases, it works very well, but in some cases, it goes very badly as these same individuals become known as cult leaders instead and lead people astray. Or in some ethnic churches, right? People are appointed to leadership. Why? Not because they're qualified but because their uncle is so-and-so or their cousin is the pastor of the church. All this is favoritism and partiality operating out of worldly criteria and not the criteria of God. And Paul says to that, don't give in to fear. You know, can you trust that the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his church more than you or I do, if only we follow his commands, he will take care of his church, even if it seems impossible. Can you trust him in that? He'll do what's best for his church. He tells Timothy, this is what you're to do, Timothy. Don't panic. Keep yourself pure, spiritually pure, and don't be complicit in other sins, other sins by appointing too early. You know, I think the emphasis on spiritual purity here uh, helps us make sense of this verse 23, in which Paul tells Timothy not to drink only water, but to drink some wine medicinally for his stomach problems. Now, commentators are all over the map as to what they think this means because it just seems to appear out of the blue. But I think the best way to understand this is that Timothy probably had taken a vow not to take any alcohol, very much like the ascetics who swore off all alcohol thinking that it led them to be more holy by not touching anything. I think Paul's point is this. Timothy, ascetics are not holy simply because they completely abstain, abstain from alcohol. A little alcohol by itself does not make you impure. But guess what does? A little sin does. And if you tolerate an elder's sinfulness, even if it's small, that is far more contaminating to you than a few drops of wine. Use a little medicine, Timothy. Take care of your health. Take care of your body, child. But also more importantly, Timothy, keep yourself pure 
and do what is right in the church. Take time to observe elder candidates. Why? Because it says in verse 25, the sins of some people appear right away, whereas the sins of some people come out much later. And the same is true actually for good works. Sometimes you see it right away, sometimes you don't until much later. I remember an elderly lady in the church once when I was, happened to be there, I discovered that she was washing all the nursery toys you know, by hand. And I found out later that she did this every week, month after month, year after year. She didn't tell anybody about it. I always wondered why the toys were so clean. It's because of some lady who came into the church all the time and did this. You know, if you have this reputation of doing hidden good works in the church, you will get caught eventually. Somebody will find you washing the Legos. You know, good works, people devote themselves. You will find out. It can't remain hidden. But the same thing is true for sin. Keep up a pattern of sin in your life, and eventually people will find out. And this is why the apostle urges that you not appoint leaders right away. We are not God. We cannot look into the heart and look at people and say, wow, I see what you're hiding there. I know what's going to happen in a year from now. We don't know that. And so we need time simply to see and observe and to pray and seek God's face. God, you show us what is there. And if anything is wrong with this individual, let us know and help us to dodge a bullet with this appointment. But the flip side is also true. There are some people who you might look at at the beginning and say, yeah, he wasn't very much to begin with as a pastor, way too young, didn't like him or so on. But you know, after a year, it kind of grew on me, like even like a barnacle. You know what I mean? I just can't get rid of him now. I really like him. I want to keep him as a pastor. Some people are like that. You don't like them initially, but as you get to know them, you see what's in their heart and their reputation for good works. And you say, that's my elder. I want that person to be my pastor. I put in your outline this. Appoint new pastors slowly. Don't rush appointing them, whether you're a church leader or a congregation that gives approval, and defile your purity by becoming complicit in the sins that they wreak havoc on in the congregation. Church, you know, these instructions are very relevant to us as a church, especially as Peter mentioned, we are moving forward with thinking about how to discern, test, approve, and ultimately appoint biblically qualified elders. You know, the church of Jesus Christ is his bride and cannot live by human wisdom, but only by God's. And therefore, we should listen to these scriptures, pay the good pastors, discipline bad pastors, and appoint new pastors slowly. Do this and we'll be a light to the world. But at the same time, I want to talk to us and say this isn't just about church leadership, you know, or it's also about, I think, what's doing right in our own lives. You know, for example, why do churches not doubly honor or pay pastors or give them the respect that they are due? And I think in some cases, it's because these churches either don't know these commands and take them seriously, or because they actually value beautiful buildings or other things rather than the gospel ministry, and it shows where they put their money. You know, the question for us is really the same thing. If God were to look at my heart and the way that I spend my money, does the way that I use my money show that what I treasure most of all is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that I value his work? Am I stingy with what I spend on the orphans, the poor, the care of my aging relatives, or on missionaries? Does it look like I'm building my own kingdom or does it look like I'm building God's kingdom? It's the same fear that drives churches not to pay their pastors. It's a valuing of money for other things. What about disciplining bad pastors? 
Not all of us will sit on a church board and have to deal with the initial steps of disciplining a pastor who is in sin, but all of us understand what they might be going through, right? The fear of man. See, you may never battle with the fear of having to confront an elder in their sin, but you, I'm certain, will battle with the fear of confronting other people or even yourself in your own sin. Are there sins in, the li- in your own life or in the people's lives around you that need to be confronted? You hope that it just goes away or somebody else will deal with it, but God has put you there and said, no, no, you're the one who's supposed to bring up the fault. You know, Christ and his angels and God himself look down on us and they encourage us and they say, we see. And can you trust that the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved your soul, bought you out of the slave market of sin, paid for your sins, will empower you, encourage you, and strengthen you to live and do what is right. He does not command you to do what he does not give you the strength as well to do. Are there things in your life in which you are fearing man more than God? Listen to the words of Jesus, right? Don't fear the one who can kill only the body, but fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Fear God. Truly the one who kneels before God can stand before anyone. Learn to kneel before God. And the last one here. What about rushing to appoint new pastors? Sure, you might not be on the pastoral selection committee, but you understand what it means to use human wisdom and to be afraid and having to rush into things because you're worried, if I don't get this, it's FOMO, right? F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. If I don't do this now, I will lose out at the end of the day. You know, what does God tell us to do? Pray, seek his face. Don't rush into it because you don't know what lies in the heart. Observe and see. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ urged us, you know, I mean, to do these things. Are you moving forward with something in your life that's major right now without prayer or consultation from other believers? Because you really want it, but you have a sense that God maybe is not in it. When we rush major decisions without consulting God, we are saying to him, my wisdom trumps yours, Lord. My will for my life be done, not yours. But when we wait and we humbly acknowledge that we need him and we do not see the world with eyes that are all-seeing omniscient and we need his help, we're saying to God, God, we need you. We need you. Help us now. You know, church, let me ask, what is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to trust him with? Perhaps you're not a believer here today and what God is calling you to do is to give up control of your own life. Your life never went the way that you thought it would. And God speaks to you now and says, stop driving your own car and let me drive. And let me show you what it means to live a life that is truly full. A life that cannot be taken away from you, either by disease, the loss of your job, or destruction in your own family. Let me talk to you about eternal life and what you need most of all, the forgiveness of your sins and a relationship with me. Or if you're a believer here today, is God calling you to change your attitude towards church leaders or to trust him for plans that you've been making but you have not consulted him with or with your money or with fear of a certain person that you actually need to speak to in grace and truth. Whatever it is, our Lord has promised us he will never leave us or forsake us. So let us go out and do what he commands in the joy that he supplies and also in his strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for saving our souls and giving us a family of Christians to love. And Father, I know we've talked a lot about church leadership here today. 
And I pray you would help us to be a church, oh God, that chooses biblically qualified, not worldly qualified individuals to serve and to continue to shepherd this flock. But Father, most of all, I ask also that when it comes to our money, human wisdom, our fear of individuals, God, that you would help us, oh God. Not just when it comes to selecting leaders to think about all these things and to do it rightly, but also in our own lives, that we would trust you. Help us to be grasped, oh God, by the greatness of Christ and help us to grow, oh God, into a church of godly Christ-honoring people who preach about Jesus and do not smell like decay, but of the fragrant aroma of Christ to a world that needs him. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.